Welcome back to the Field Trip Podcast. My name is Brent Terhune. Joining me, I think for the first time on this show, uh, Todd McComas. Todd, how you doing, man? Good, buddy. I'm excited to be on here. I'm a big fan, obviously, as you know. So, yeah. Well, likewise. Yeah, Todd, uh, let's let's tell people who you are in case they don't know. You're a, I met you doing stand-up. I, I was thinking this morning I th- would have known you probably 10 years, you, you'd say? Yeah, well, probably 12, maybe closer okay. to 13. I yeah. was well, I'm 52. I started stand up when I was 38, so whatever that wherever that puts okay. us. I and you were the first person to actually in comedy to come up to me and say, "Hey, you should keep doing this and this is how you become part of our scene here." In oh, okay. So it's my fault. It's your fault. So everyone <laughs> that hates what I do on stage Blame Brent to you. Hey, you know, I'm I'm responsible for at least one career, I guess. You're welcome. <laughs> no. Uh yeah, I always thought you were a funny guy. And and then you uh I get to know you a little bit better and find out you have a, a whole life besides comedy. Cause uh I I'll you were a police officer, then a detective, and I know that's very brief, so you tell me the details. Yeah, man. I spent 21 years on the, on the Indiana state police and I started out as a trooper mm-hmm. like everybody else, you know, and, uh, I worked in a very rural part of Indiana mm-hmm. and two and a half years in, I was working a gambling boat cause my class got funded by the new gambling boats and that whole operation in Indiana. Yeah. So we had as new sign-ons, our classes were paid by those boats. Mm-hmm. So we had to do a year on the boat while they figured out how to form an actual gaming commission. So they put a bunch of young, dumb troopers full of piss and vinegar who wanted to be on the streets, catching bad guys on this boat to regulate mm-hmm. gaming without any training on the laws or regulations of gaming. <laughs> well, it was a fiasco, but uh, while I was on there, I was on there with some older guys and they were like, Hey, you got to get good at promotion testing because you know, you're not going to get promoted in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. Usually you got to wait 10 years or so, but get good at taking the test, doing the interview, get all Mm -hmm. that down for when you do have enough time on to get promoted. So a detective opening opened up in the Indianapolis district where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, well, here's I'll I'll practice this one. I'll, I'll put in for this one. And I beat out everybody and got oh, the wow. job with like two and a half years on. I Because of the year on the riverboat, I'd only worked the road for 15 months. Mm-hmm. So it was completely unheard of to get promoted that quickly with that little experience. So I got to spend 19 plus years of my 21 as an actual detective. Now, what, what do you attribute uh to to actually getting that promotion because you you beat out everybody why do you think that is i'm just a f- really good bullshitter <laughs> to be honest i'm just really good on my feet you know which is i guess why i wanted to do comedy mm-hmm. i i think i was good as a police officer but i only had 15 months you know yeah um i was very active and it seemed like i always had a way of stumbling into bigger shit than my peers mm-hmm. so to speak but 
I, uh, I think I, that was it. I was just a really good interviewer. You know, I'd been in the military, so I was a little more mature for my age as far as okay. a new police officer than my peers. And that was the Marines, uh, right? Yeah. And okay, I was a military cool. policeman there, you know, so okay. I had a little bit more worldliness to me than your average 25 year old trooper, 26 year old, whenever it was, I put in for that. So, yeah. Yeah. What's that, whatever what's that test like? Is it written and then interviews and all that? There was a written test and it's basically, here's the textbook, you know, and you, you read it, the test questions will be from that book and from, you know, the Indiana criminal code book. Okay. So yeah, a mixture of those two things. So you, and, yeah, you quickly uh, become a detective, but what, what does that mean when you, and what's the difference between a, a police officer and a detective? I think it's, you know, I was thinking about, I think I had the idea, but you tell me from somebody that did it. Yeah. So as a trooper here, now a lot of states troopers only do traffic and crashes, basically. Mm -hmm. They're called highway patrol. Okay. If, here's a little known thing just for people to put this in, tidbit in their pocket. Uh, if it if it says state police behind it mm -hmm. instead of highway patrol, then you do the same thing as, as local police officers do mm -hmm. your full functioning police department. You take calls, you do domestics, anything else that comes down the line. So we were state police. So I had worked criminal cases myself, like burglaries and whatnot, mm -hmm. but you know, the whole time I was always looking at the detectives because mm -hmm. they were working murders and, you know, sexual assaults and, armed robberies, bank robberies, all these cool things. And I was like, mm, it's way better than me writing my 15 tickets for the day, hoping yeah. that one of those cars has a load of dope in it or something. Mm -hmm. you know? So I quickly gravitated toward them. And I would always like, Hey, if you need help, like you need somebody ran down or something and mm -hmm. you don't have time to do that. Hit me up, man. I just love to help in any way. I mm -hmm. always did that. And I think it paid off because I learned a, a great bit about what they do before I went into that interview phase, mm -hmm. putting in for the job. And it turned out like when I got picked, I it was very, I was freaked out, man. I'm like, I am oh, in no. Podunk, Indiana, yeah. <laughs> and now I'm going to Indianapolis to be a detective. Like, this is like real shit. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, I actually worked the case, you know, because I have a bit based on it about a guy that had sex with a chicken. Like I'm, I'm working stuff like that in Podunk, Indiana. Yeah. Now I got to go to Indianapolis where there's murders and bank robberies and shit happening all the time. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was very intimidating, but come to find out the principles of a criminal investigation are the same, whether mm -hmm. it be a murder or like a, a check fraud case. Yeah. You, you basically work them chronologically the same. So I was pretty sound more sound than I expected I would be. And, you know, they did a good job of training this too. Back then, now they get no training. They just jump them right in there. But yeah. when I did it, you had like six months of training before you could actually start taking cases. What does that, what does that uh, mean? Training? Are you shadowing a, a detective that's been on the job a while and you take some classes? Yeah. You would shadow. And then in between you would take like a three week homicide investigation course and okay. then a sexual assault course and different things, hostage negotiation courses and mm -hmm. things like that. Not to bone you up as a hostage negotiator, but to prepare you to manage a scene where you would use one. Okay. 
Detectives are scene managers, basically. When it's mm-hmm. your case, you're in charge and you're the orchestrator. Okay. So you had to learn a little bit about what everybody in your crime scene is going to be doing. Okay. So one of yes, my favorite cliches of any cops thing is one guy's on the scene and then the other's like, This is my case now. And then oh, yeah. somebody's like, No, you're this is my jurisdiction. I love <laughs> I love that cliche. And I'm sure that happens, but doesn't happen as often as TV would tell us. It does happen. And, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite cop thrillers of all time is Mystic River. Mm-hmm. And there is a, in the opening scene, when Sean Penn's daughter, when they discover her dead body, mm-hmm. the local police there in Boston show up and the state police. Kevin Bacon was a state police detective. Mm-hmm. He and Lawrence Fishburne. And they get into a territorial battle with the local officers and detectives right there on who's going to take the case because uh, it ended up being on state property. Okay. So then Kevin Bacon trumped him and said, Hey, it's on state property. This is ours. And he takes mm-hmm. the case. Now I had one where it was, it was flipped in the other direction. Yeah. We had a dead body, a stabbing victim it was a homeless person and where they were found was on state property. It was an old abandoned mental hospital mm-hmm. in the ditch of that property. But the blood trail went back to the street, which was the city of Indianapolis's jurisdiction. Yeah. Primarily. So we were arguing in the opposite direction. We don't want this case, you know, but yeah. the blood trail leads back to the to the city venue. So it's yours. They weren't they weren't very happy about it. Yeah. As is uh I assume most people don't want the work, right? They don't want an extra case. Like I do, but murders like that, to be honest, go on to be a nightmare. It was a homeless okay. person, probably stabbed by another homeless person just in a fight. Like, mm-hmm. good luck with that one, you know? Yeah. And to be honest, city PD is more equipped for that scenario because mm-hmm. they have more people in that concentrated area. They have a beat cops, you know, that work the hell out of that area and, and no you know mm-hmm. who the problem people are and they interact with the homeless population there where we bounce all over the state. So oh yeah. It would have been a lot more difficult for us to work. Uh, before I guess I should tell you, dear listener, you read the description, but I want to talk about the true crime phenomenon with Todd, but uh, I, I have, I had a question and it's, we kind of touched on it already, but what uh, t- TV or, or film depiction is most accurate when it comes to cops and uh, police work and detective work, the wire, by okay. far the wire i actually rode two weeks with the unit for baltimore pd that the wire was based on mm-hmm. and uh they were the electronic surveillance unit for baltimore police department and i i don't know who the consultant was for that mm-hmm. but they had to be in-house because their shop was on like a shipping dock mm-hmm. like and it didn't look like a pd it was it was very covert it looked just like where they worked out of uh, the aspects of how to work a wiretap investigation were spot on. Mm-hmm. Like I worked the sh- a shit ton of wiretaps. That was kind of my specialty in my career. And, and I rode with these guys in particular and how they did, how they worked that wiretap in this, mm-hmm. in that series is exactly how you work them in real life. And especially how Baltimore worked them back then. Okay. So that's by far the most realistic cop series I've ever seen. What's the most unrealistic thing you've seen in TV or movies where you're like, this would never happen. It's usually the number one 
is the detective driving his own car while he's okay. at work. Like, like Will Smith has, you know, uh, some kind of sports car, convertible sports car or some mm-hmm. hot rod, you know, beefed up muscle car. Like you can't drive your own damn car, dude. Insurance reasons. Yeah. <laughs> your and private I- insurance won't cover you <laughs> if you drive it during work and you crash it. And also, I don't want anybody to know what I'm driving when exactly. I'm picking up, trying to pick up these criminals, you know? Right. Yeah. And some dudes <laughs> are going to puke in your back seat, you know, like <laughs> yeah. shit like that. You don't need that going on in your own car. No. Now you guys roll up to the scene. You see a bag with some white powder. Of course, you dip a knife in it and taste it, right? Oh, yeah. Every time, you know, because, <laughs> you know, it could, yeah, it could be laced with PCP. You know, mm-hmm. you don't want to miss that experience. Yeah. Or some kind of poison like yeah. that. That's, that's probably number two. Yeah, definitely. The, uh, the little knife inserted in the bag of cocaine and mm-hmm. a little tongue test. And, and then they even like take their right. finger on the teeth. Like, Oh, but dude, are you a big time cokehead? How do you know? Yeah. That? It's a, it's yeah, it's, it's almost like a great way to get hooked on drugs is right. to sample them at every stop. <laughs> like it's yeah. Costco. Right. <laughs> uh, so you, you're no stranger to, true crime podcasts and true crime in general. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about because you've had true crime podcasts right now. You have one called the investigators. And I think you said how many episodes are out currently at the time of this recording. Uh, We have five out right now. It releases Um, every Wednesday, every Wednesday. And uh, so why, why is you think true crime so popular? And I don't know that it's a new phenomenon, but it's like, with with podcasting, it's certainly like a, another level to true crime because we've had 2020 and Dateline and all that stuff. But what what intrigues people about true crime? Two things I, I attribute it to. One being, I think a lot of us have an inner detective. Like mm-hmm. that's a job a lot of people that haven't gotten to do it mm-hmm. wish they, they could do or at least, you know, give it a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, I think, is it's a window into a world that normal people don't get to interact with, yeah. and, but yet it's happening around us. Cause we all have the citizen app and the, in the news and we got Google, we see the horrible shit all day and all night long. That's happening within, you know, a couple mile radius of mm-hmm. where we physically are, but we don't get to see it or touch it. Well, mm-hmm. True crime podcasts and doc, especially documentaries, I think, allow us to to actually see it and touch it and, and hear it and taste it, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's part of when you are a cop for a long time, or even especially probably a detective. That's something you take for granted. I think now that I've been retired for a while, it's something I I didn't realize, you know. I was inside that ugliness and that evil and that I was very jaded. Mm-hmm. Like, like the world's a dangerous fucking place. And well, how could you not when that, when you, every day you're seeing a new chalk outline, you know? Right. And they just, oh, all the child molester, like, you, you know, to look at those registries and see how many people, like, it'll freak you out. How many mm-hmm. people are on that registered list that live close enough that they pop up on your neighborhood app. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's, it's very, it's very crazy in that respect. And and now I get it because I'm hanging out with true crime personalities, uh, podcasters and filmmakers and, and even fans. Like I just came back from crime con, you know, 5,000 true crime enthusiasts or fans there. And I see how they view, I get it now. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, 
there is a fascination there and there should be because all these monsters that we see in these products, like they're real world monsters. Mm-hmm. Like they're the closest thing we have to vampires and werewolves, like something that comes from the night and plucks the innocent out of this world forever. Mm-hmm. And it's scary to think about, but they're living amongst us, you know? Yeah. And so I, I get it now because I, I am equally as fascinated in that respect, even though I worked it for, for such a long time, I'm always mm-hmm. fascinated in these people that deviate from morality. And then, you know, on the highest echelon level, just operate from a constant perspective of evil. Mm-hmm. Like that blows my mind. To Yeah. To choose evil. Cause mo- I think most people lean good mm-hmm. and at yeah. bare minimum aren't one way or the other, but then it, to just be like, I want to go in somebody's life today. It's such a strange thought. It is. And and that's why they're so fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, I love vampire movies. I love werewolf, man, you know, all that shit. Underworld is one of my favorite. Like to me, they're, they're the closest we can get to that. Yeah. You know? These well, are that, real that, monsters. You know, I'm a huge horror fan and listener of the shows. No, but that, like true crime and stuff that's that's real that's like yeah that's, right you watch horror movies to escape the horror in real life you know right and i th- i think it's it's what you said where people it's a peek into a life that most people don't have access to that's why we love mafia stuff that's why we like it's it's like i i'm never gonna be in the back room making a deal with somebody hopefully right. not so it's like it's a peek into Tony Soprano's life, which is fictional, but some of it is taken from reality, you know? Yeah. And I, here's what, here's what I especially love about that genre within true crime is these are killers. You know, we view them a little differently because it's kind of just part of their job killers, you know, like getting rid of competition or people that owe them money and things like that. But they're, Many of them should be considered serial killers because of the body count mm-hmm. they have. And, you know, it's spread out. So it meets the definition, but we don't lump them in the same category because they're not linked by this deviant fantasy that they feel compelled to, to live out. Yeah. You know, like it's just mo- part of the job for them. Right. Like, right. Like I have a, I have, a, I, listen, I have a buddy who, who was a made man in the Philadelphia mafia. And he lives here in Indianapolis because he ended up getting relocated here on his second or third relocation through the witness protection program. Yeah. And his, his name's John Vesey. He doesn't, he doesn't hide it anymore. So I'm not outing Mm -hmm. him. Um, But you know, he was, he was a thug in Philadelphia of his own admission and he would uh, rob people because he was a horrible meth addict. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, he would hang out in that area in Philadelphia that's really become a problem now, Kensington, and uh, and just stay high all the time. And he was out whatever he could do that day to score enough money to get high. Mm-hmm. And if that meant beating the shit out of people or, or physically harming them, then that's what it meant to the point that he had robbed enough people affiliated with the Stanfield crime family that at some point they were like, we either got to kill this guy or sign him up. <laughs> and they signed him up and he, six months later, he was so volatile. Like they couldn't control him. He's got this line. It's so funny to me, but uh, he kept rock, kept robbing made 
guys mm-hmm. in the, their poker games or whatever. And so the, the underboss was like, and if his family was like, listen, you can't, you got to get permission to, to hit these guys. And he's like, how do I know who's fucking made? Anybody can say they're made. Like every time I try to rob somebody or they say they're made, I got to turn around and go home. Mm-hmm. Like, no. <laughs> so at some point they decided they needed to get rid of him and they, they shot him, tried to kill him. And uh, he lived through it and then became an informant for the FBI. And yeah. Brought down both, brought down two families. So uh, the only two families there that were of consequence. Mm-hmm. So, but now what fascinates me is, I know it's a long way to get there, but th- those people also have regular lives. And when you watch like Sammy DeBull, Gravano, and, and mm-hmm. Michael Francisi, and, and Joey Merlino, and these people now that are out and that are becoming public podcasting, figures, I've listened to yeah. Sammy the Bull's podcast, right. you know, like. To know they were doing what they were doing, but also taking their kids to church or, you know, mm-hmm. going to PTA meetings and whatever in the hell they were doing, just like we were. In that same regard, you know, serial killers are like that. Mm-hmm. They have they have regular lives, too. And some of them aren't as out of place as we would think, like BTK mm-hmm. fit in very well in his community. I, I know his daughter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they really had no idea. So that's extra fascinating to me it's like it's almost like you know you and i are both getting into screenwriting so it's it's interesting like when you think of characters and you try to build characters the most interesting characters to me are people that have ordinary lives wrapped within this extraordinary life mm-hmm. right like to yeah. see them do the same shit we do but also you know, they're, they, they're traveling to Mars next week or whatever the hell's going on. Yeah. Working at the car wash and teaching during the day, but then cooking myth. Right. At night. Yeah. Where yeah. it's like, Oh, this is not my life. It's yeah. It's a peek into yeah. something I'll never see. Right. Like this long Island serial killer. Have you seen him on the, like, he's a scary looking dude. No, I haven't. Is that a fairly new development and true crime? Yeah, yeah, okay. they, they connected him. Uh, I believe I don't speak out, speak wrongly about this, but I believe it was like a genetic genealogy DNA okay, thing, that yeah. stuff. And um, they got him identified, and his trial will be coming up. But when you look at that guy, you're like, oh yeah, that's what a serial killer should look like. <laughs> yeah, looks he, scary as shit. He fits in for sure, right? <laughs> right, but but yeah, he had a whole family, and you know, was living in a community and working mm-hmm. and. Nobody did it. No, I knew it because in effect, he had retired. Yeah. Same, same way with BTK. Like People don't think they always say, well, I was trained this way too. Traditionally, the thought was serial killers can't stop because of their compulsion. Mm-hmm. Now we know, yeah, they can. And mm-hmm. they're scared to go to prison. They're scared of dying just like everybody else. Cause they're a human like you. They just have something up here. That's fucked up. Yeah. And uh, they do, they age out a lot of them at some point. And they're like, you know, what happened to BTK specifically, his last one, there was a guy there that he didn't know would be there, I think, or that he didn't, at least didn't think was going to be a problem. And the guy nearly beat the shit out of him. Mm-hmm. And he was almost stuck there. And he he made the determination, I'm going to end up getting killed. I'm getting too old. It's like getting too Glover. old for this yeah. shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm going to get killed or end up in prison. But I and I got a family to raise. I can't leave my family. What What a bizarre yeah, you know the same thing we would think about. I can't play softball anymore mm-hmm. because I pull a hamstring every time. You know. Yeah, yeah, that is a weird thought. But it's then it's also like nobody's making you kill. 
right. you're the only one that's <laughs> choosing to do this right yeah yeah so wh- what do they teach a detective about serial killers did you mention right. it's like it was it was compulsive now we don't think that right and i i wish i had gotten up-to-date trading toward the end of my career, but so much really changed. I retired in 2017. Mm-hmm. So I was done by January, 2017. I went to work for the Pat McAfee show. And that's when things really started to change mm-hmm. because that's when the new evolution of DNA came mm-hmm. to be. So they were solving a, a record number of cases through DNA and older cases specifically. Yeah. I mean, like the golden state killer, right? Like that was a huge yeah. one. Yeah, like I interviewed Paul Holes, um, and you know he was he worked that he was he was the first real detective I believe to to tap into genetic genealogy DNA. This mm-hmm. you know hey this uh, this ancestry dot com and the use of twenty three and Me and all that stuff all that all that's there. Why couldn't we use that in law enforcement? Yeah, because before you always had to we have this database called CODIS. Mm-hmm. The FBI started in like 97 or something. You had to, if you had a DNA profile from an offender from your victim or from your crime scene, you had to either have a suspect to get a swab from and compare, mm-hmm. or you had to hope that they'd been convicted of a violent crime in that window after CODIS started. So their DNA would be in the, in the database. Yeah. Absent of those two things, it would just go unsolved. Mm-hmm. Well, now they, you know, they have the technology to track these people down through their genealogy. Mm -hmm. And so they are now learning way more about serial killers. So everything I know now, this updated knowledge all comes from people like Paul holes, just through my own initiating conversation or interviewing them and Mm -hmm. whatnot. So traditionally serial killers were lone wolves. They could not stop. They would offend and, and kill until they were caught or Mm -hmm. they died. Now we know they retire like anybody else. They age out of that crime. The fantasy doesn't stop. The deviancy doesn't stop, but they find other ways kind of like methadone for heroin addicts. They find a lesser way to satisfy that. What is that way? Is there like certain things that people gravitate towards? BTK. I'll just use him for an example. He would rent a hotel room, like a shitty hotel room. Yeah. And he I probably would, stayed in it. Yeah, you probably did. <laughs> <laughs> I did see one that says BTK was here on the wall, like <laughs> right? Shawshank. So go ahead. <laughs> so he would lay out pictures he had taken of his victims. You know, he had like a little treasure chest he kept of souvenirs from oh, yeah. his murders. He would lay them out. He would dress up as that victim, mm-hmm. take photos of himself with a, you know, a ligature around the neck and whatever. And then masturbate and do whatever sick shit he wanted to do. Yeah. And that was enough to keep him from going out and offending. Mm-hmm. Basically. Fantasy football versus playing football. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that does happen. And now, because of one particular case that I found myself in the in the middle of and that, you know, is being pitched as a documentary series right now, there networks like serial killers aren't lone wolves necessarily not that mm-hmm. you know many were of course but we also i'm convinced because of the one case we we looked at that we've had networks all along where they were working in concert killers were you know mm-hmm. five six seven of them working together 
and killing and preying on the same demographic in the same geographic areas. Mm-hmm. Like it's the yeah. John Wick Hotel where they're exactly. all hanging out. They got a clubhouse and pay dues and scary. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the probably the dumber ones uh, on the that totem pole in their hierarchy of their little network mm-hmm. got picked off, got convicted, never ponied up information. Now, in some cases, like in my case, they did yeah. read out everybody else. It's just police didn't pursue it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I get it. A lot of that depends on your demographic. You know, if they were gay men, it was a very homophobic era. Yeah. It wasn't getting media attention. If it was minority victims, if there were prostitutes were your victims, like police back then primarily focused uh, from the perspective, the squeaky wheel gets oiled. Yeah. And if there wasn't a lot of public pressure, Mm-hmm. to pursue things past that point of up oh, the monster's gone he's in prison case mm-hmm. over look at us then they would not pursue it yeah what's so, uh can you talk about the this case at all that you're you kind of you mentioned a little bit can you tell me a little bit about it yeah it's interesting because you know in indianapolis the area they're they're doing a, a profile on a, one of our local news stations I, I just saw it's coming up in a night or two about herbert baumeister mm-hmm. who is probably I, I'm assuming our most famous serial killer, mm-hmm. and uh, they're in looking at that case and one the Larry Eiler series that was that preceded the Baumeister killings. Mm-hmm. Both these guys were gay men who preyed on gay men, mm-hmm. and one was a strangler, at least that's what everybody thinks, and then one was a stabber, basically, mm-hmm. and. Historically speaking, the account is these two things happened within the 16 year era and they were in no way related to each other. Mm-hmm. Well, myself and Stuart Huff is a good friend of yours. Stuart as well. Huff, yeah, he's been on the show yeah, before. Yeah, we <laughs> uh, stumbled into looking at something totally unrelated, end up on the trail of of this story. And after two and a half years of going through police records we obtained and then court records and whatnot. It looks like those two were somewhat related and there were other people in that mix. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I am not a, a someone who, who jumps on the bandwagon, like in the, the son of Sam case where now they're, you know, the one guy, the journalist tried to connect a whole network in that. Mm-hmm. That was loosely based, I would yeah. say, at best. This is real shit. Like I, I'm totally convinced, and I'm not. I'm not easily convinced, and I've shown it to a lot of law enforcement minds, prosecutors, and and agency heads at mm-hmm. police departments, and they all agree. Like, yeah, we don't know what we're gonna be able to do about it, but looks like you nailed it. That's what yeah. was going on. When I when you're putting this case together, I just picture you. It's a it's a bunch of uh, string connecting other points, and you <laughs> sound you sound crazy before you sound sane when you're like, no, just listen to me, you know? Yeah, no, like I literally worked this for a year with Stuart, trying to prove it wasn't true mm-hmm. because I'm like, people are this is going to be a hard sell. Like people are, yeah. this could ruin my reputation. Like, because mm-hmm. well, that's what happened to the journalist chasing the the sons. He plural of sam yeah um so i'm like l- let me just prove it so we can stop because I, I have a problem i can't stop until i get the answers and mm-hmm. have a real bulldog mentality when it comes to that so uh, we were we were no cards on walls 
like and making connections and that whole thing and just documents my converted one of my extra bedrooms into like a war room basically for this mm-hmm. case which is down my studio but uh <laughs> um it was a mess man and when it all came together it really it got scary for a minute because mm-hmm. you know three of these guys still alive it's like wow they yeah. just retired like paul holsa told me the golden state killer did and mm-hmm. that we know btk did and now the long island serial killer did they just aged out and stopped and they're i see them on facebook and shit yeah enjoying their lives and there's That's, no doubt in my yeah. mind they killed you know dozens mm-hmm. of men that were young and vulnerable and people members of their own you know population and communities that were yeah. having a tough enough problem you know it was tough enough for them to to live their lives then mm-hmm. and, and they're just plucking them off vulnerable as hell and taking advantage of the whole situation do you think what the work you're doing that some of these guys will be brought to justice or what it's just or is it like what's some of the cops told you is yep that's there but i don't know what we can do i hope so i know the yeah. fbi has been since we stirred the hornet's nest i don't know if it's solely because of that but the timing's pretty coincidental um they're looking at old evidence in those cases mm-hmm. things like that you know shit's happening the problem is you know what hurts most cases of that age are they were investigated in that era pre-DNA or any, you know, this forensic technology we have now. So shit was done different and yeah. we didn't preserve things properly. And we weren't thinking, we, no one thought back then we should be very methodical in unsolved murders, how we preserve evidence because science is going to continue to change. Yeah. You didn't know back then what we know now. You right. Know? I mean, Save somebody- that jizz. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which a case in Shelby County got solved because one you know, over-conscientious detective swabbed a semen specimen from a mm-hmm. garage floor during a sexual assault. And this was an, an, a serial rapist mm-hmm. investigation and preserved it properly. And just last year, they caught the guy through genetic genealogy DNA just yeah. because that one detective for no good reason. I know I can't do anything with this right now, mm-hmm. but I feel like it might be important one day. Say that you testament to hoarding. Exactly. I, I don't I won't need this now, but I might need it in 10 years. Wouldn't hoarders be great crime scene investigators? Oh, I mean, they're yeah. so good at collecting and preserving shit. Like, yeah. yeah, that's a great thought. Those are good 10 year old newspapers. You never know. <laughs> um, uh, you mentioned like uh, a guy was a stabber, a guy was a strangler. Uh, do you find that uh, when you get a serial killer, they have the same method? It's like, oh, it's they left their calling card. And why? Why is that? They just like to do things the way they want to do it. Yeah, I think we're all, we all work within our comfort zone or, mm-hmm. and, and we all like, whether it looks like just say a sport, mm-hmm. like um, golfing, you know, everybody has their own style and your style is created by what mechanically is most comfortable for you and the pace at which you play and all these things just you subconsciously are like, oh, this, this is where I feel the most secure when I'm playing golf. Mm-hmm. It's that way, I think, when, when they kill. So stabbing is a very intimate, like, uh, you know, it's up close and personal. Yes. And it's very sexual. A lot of people will say it's definitely 
killers like that that you see the stab like Larry Eiler did, he would stab these victims 30, 40, 50 times. Mm-hmm. It was rage. And what was happening was in his particular instance, every time this guy he was in love with, you know, his boyfriend would fuck around on him or do something to hurt him emotionally. Mm-hmm. He just didn't have a mechanism to deal with that inside. And he would go out and pick up a street hustler or a hitchhiker and then take them to the woods under the, the ruse that he's going to pay him to let him, you know, blow him or whatever. Yeah. Some kind of sexual act in the woods. And after he tied them up, he would just go nuts. And in my mind, he's stabbing his boyfriend, mm-hmm. he's killing his boyfriend, which is something he can't do because he's in love with him. Yeah. But, but this uh, is the next best thing. Right. So that's, it's a very, it's very personal to them. I think how they kill and there's definitely psychological basis mm-hmm. for the methods they stick with, you know, not that they don't deviate every now and then, but I think that's when they do, it's more something happened to change their gears. Yeah. You know? Is there one that either you've come across personally or just know in the, in true crime in general of like being the, the weirdest way somebody kills? I tell you the, the, the ones that kind of, I get a kick out of looking into, or there was this whole era. I want to say maybe the twenties, thirties. I'm bad with, with my, my memory doesn't work that way. I'm bad with eras and and years, but uh, back in the day, you could get an insurance policy on anyone. Uh I could get an insurance policy on you without you even knowing it. Like then I get suspicious about us. Right. Right. (laughs) So, there was these women, these black widow killers, they would call them. Um, they would get insurance policies on their husbands and they would then poison them slowly with arsenic over a period of time. Now, this was during the, an era also. I, here we go. This just jogged my memory. It's during prohibition mm-hmm. because a lot of people were buying bootleg alcohol. Okay. The problem with that was if your bo- bootlegger wasn't overly conscientious, in the brewing or the making of it, mm-hmm. a lot of people died from poisoning. You know, they, yeah. they would kind of OD from this bootleg alcohol. So a lot of these arsenic poisons, these deaths were being attributed to, Oh, he got some, he got a bad batch of, you know, moonshine or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there were, there was quite an era there, quite a run for these ladies collecting insurance yeah. policies on their husbands. And to me that like, that's, the most fascinating because we all know like women are way better at that shit. They're way better planners. You know, they're, it's, they're way more. It's a, the long con. It's I got to yes. get poison and uh, you want soup again. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. We don't have the patience for that. We just fucking stab you. you know, or yeah. shoot you. Like it to me, it, it's pretty fascinating. So I don't know if that's weird or not, but it's definitely an area. It's definitely there that's ma- maniacal. Wrong. It's uh, malicious yeah. because it takes thought. You dude, you got to put together a recipe. Then also a couple drops of that. Exactly. It's uh, it's weird how I'm like, oh, that's so cruel. But yeah, stab him. That's fine. Mm-hmm. I don't. I think both are cruel, but it's a different level of thinking. Oh, you know? absolutely. Now my buddy worked a case in Arizona. This is kind of weird, and he's doing uh we, they're our partners actually in our production company. So that their podcast comes out in November, but their first one episode is called nothing but a butt thing. And it was about this killer who was killing people that were signing up for these Botox parties. Okay. And they would give them Botox injections like in their ass and stuff. Mm-hmm. 
and then mixing it so that it would be a slow death as well. Like poisoning their system, shutting down their, you know, important organs. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that I would say that's the most unusual one. Yeah. And then your, your butt can't show any emotion. Right. You just sitting there. You can't clap it. Right. Doesn't that hurt your, <laughs> hurt you as a clapper? I need them clapped. So. <laughs> uh, you, you've covered a lot of cases over the years with, with true crime and stuff. Is there one that comes to mind that you like, are you an expert at, at any case you think? I, some people consider me an expert of sorts for in the Burger Chef murders. Yeah, and I listened happened. to your podcast about it. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, and I, I'm only an authority, I would say, on the one theory. Mike is my a very, very good friend of mine, worked and managed the case for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So I helped a little bit with just a simple task for like two weeks of when DNA first became a thing, like in 98 or whatever. Mm-hmm. We went through all the old evidence because this is a crime that happened like in uh, 1978. Mm-hmm. So we went through all the old evidence and to decide, oh, here's here's a, a shirt that had blood on it. You know, let's submit that for DNA. It was early on. But so I got familiar with the case then and at least his theory. I got to look through the case file, um, get familiar with it, uh, read into it, as we call it. Mm-hmm. And then I would follow it, even though I never really worked it after that stage because my buddy was working it. So yeah. I had such an interest in it. And I like I had the crime scene photos on my computer because I put together the part of the PowerPoint for him to take mm-hmm. to a grand jury when he tried to get it prosecuted. Well, can, and, you, uh, can, you, can you tell me what the, the case is? Yeah, it was basically a robbery. There were a lot of fast food robberies happening during mm-hmm. that era. And this is. Pretty much starting, I think, in the spring, late spring, early summer in 1978 to eventually this November date Mm -hmm. in 1978. And in fact, a lot of Burger Chef restaurants were getting robbed. And Burger Chef at the time was the number two burger chain in America. Mm -hmm. I just finished Mad Men and they're like, we're going to Indianapolis to get the Burger Chef account. Yeah, right. It was number two to McDonald's, basically. Mm -hmm. An interesting story there that. They were the first to come out with, they had the fun meal and they okay. would put toys in there for kids. Mm-hmm. And it was a whole meal designed for little kids. And it was a big hit. So McDonald's is like, hmm, let's take that idea and call it the happy meal. Mm-hmm. So there was this big lawsuit and it ended up kind of wrecking Burger Chef because they lost. Oh, and, wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. And they just lost so much ground. Eventually they folded as a chain. And now you'll see a lot of them as Hardee's, the, the corporation that owns Hardee's bought them out. But anyway, this, this robbery happens in November, 1978. And there's four workers there left for, to perform closing duties. And they're 16, all between 16 and 20. I think yeah. one, the system manager is 20 years old. The, the oldest of the other three is 17. And there's two females and, and two males. And something happens during the robbery to change it from a robbery to these four employees being found murdered execution style in the woods 20 minutes away. And execution styles you mean is in the back of the head, right? Is that what yeah. that okay? Two were shot while they were put in the prone position. One was found stabbed to death, interestingly enough. Um, like in a if you're looking at a clock, I would say, you know, in a three o'clock direction, about mm-hmm. 75 feet away or so. And the hilt, she was stabbed 
several times, but then on the final stab wound in a, the breastplate, mm-hmm. um, the knife blade broke off. Oh. It was still stuck in her chest when they found her. And then there was um, an African-American male employee that was found like 150, 180 feet away um, at the base of a tree. And this is the, like the biggest mystery within and the most controversial issue within this, this unsolved murder is you ever see like watch an MMA fight and somebody gets kicked in the face and they just are knocked out cold. So, so fast that they just drop straight down in their, their legs and feet get trapped under their ass. It's like uh, one of those inflatable guys and they turn the, inf- the, the air off and they just drop great analogy <laughs> straight down. And it's mm-hmm. folded in this weird contortion state. Mm-hmm. And so he's found that way is at the knees bent, you know, from the calf down, all that's trapped under his ass. He's just laying there with his arms extended above his head. And he has a broken nose and two unilateral, meaning, you know, abrasions on each cheekbone, meaning if you mm-hmm. draw a line, they're, they're lined up with each other and with the impact, the trauma to his nose. Mm-hmm. My buddy's theory is he ran when the gunshot started. And so did the assistant manager and only one person had a gun. So another person that had a knife goes and tracks her down, stabs her. Mm-hmm. And then this um, uh, young boy fled. And they know like he was, he was fast. Uh, he was, I think he ran track and stuff. Mm-hmm. So he bolts and this is the middle of the night in a woods. So it's very dark and it's winter. And we think he gets away and runs at a full sprint face first into a tree, knocks himself out, breaks his nose because there's no other injury. He just, when he collapsed, his head was lower at a lower elevation than his ass, basically. Yeah. So he ended up asphyxiating and drowning in his own blood from this broken nose. Oh, like otherwise he would have been a living witness. Yeah. Um, so it was just the position after he was knocked unconscious. That's what killed him and the, the, the bleeding from the broken nose. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people argue that, that that's, that's ridiculous. And I'm like, but you're arguing you've never seen the crime scene photos. You've never mm-hmm. gone through the case. For, like I've seen, I've seen those. I've granted I'm not old enough to have been at the scene, mm-hmm. but look at him, dude. Like some, it was one blow. I can tell you from the injury, one blow from something big enough to impact both cheekbones and his nose at the same time. Mm-hmm. And he's at the base of a tree. Like literally his knees are almost touching the bottom of this big ass tree. Yeah. So you know, it's weird. So it's gone unsolved. There's a, been a lot of theories and a lot of people working on it over the, over the, you know, the several decades since it happened. Mm-hmm. And it's a very controversial so much that I mean, people want to beat the shit out of each other over these different theories. Mm-hmm. Gets how well, passionate they are. We can, is uh, the internet community surrounding true crime, is that helping or hurting? I think it it's helping ultimately because on a lot of these cases, it keeps the conversation going. Mm-hmm. You have a thousand minds on a case. Sometimes you get, you know, that's the cliche is I'm too close to the case or I'm, you could be too close to your own writing. So you need somebody else to read it and say, Hey, this is good, but go this way. Sometimes you need fresh eyes on something. Exactly. And it does in some cases cause enough. I and mean, we talked about police, you know, the squeaky wheel gets oiled. Yeah. 
it causes enough public attention and notice because some of these podcasters just have such a, a listener base mm-hmm. that you're talking a million people are pissed off now that this case is unsolved and that police department to be honest hasn't touched it in 25 years mm-hmm. so now you're seeing cases get reopened just because there is so much internet buzz mm-hmm. and people screaming online and, and forming online posit- petitions and things like this um, to get them reopened and that that's good now when yeah. you're a podcaster Within that genre, sometimes those people can be, you know, a pain in your fucking ass. Like, yeah, <laughs> they come that, after that you. That could be any industry. You're yeah. going to have the pains in any industry. Right, right. You get trolled sometimes and you get people that are so passionate about their theory, even though they have never dealt with a criminal investigation ever. All of a sudden yeah. you're an idiot and, you know, you got to deal with that sometimes. But yeah, the guy that was there has no idea. Right. How would you know? Uh well, you're talking about the, the the kid hitting the tree and how it's such a crazy theory. Are you familiar with the staircase? Yes. Uh, case. And so if, you, if you're not seeing it's a I don't know. One is a documentary. One is a dramatization. And the the one with Colin Firth, Tony Collette is on Max. I watched that one after watching the documentary of essentially uh, to, to be brief. This lady falls down the stairs and it's so brutalized blood everywhere that, and then they think, Oh, it was her husband, but he made a, made her look like she fell down the steps. And one of the crazier theories in that one, do you know what I'm, I'm going to bring up Todd? Oh yes. Yes. The, they think she was attacked by a, an owl or a hawk. And then she out in the front yard goes inside. Cause her head's all uh, cut up from the claws. And then, falls back down the steps after you know she's so dazed and then that the documentary or no the the dramatization it's hard to watch i don't know if you watch that but it's seeing somebody die and you're like god damn you know yeah and that's and a dramatization this- but it's it's even like it, it's it's in the place where it, it took place like they made it look like this crime scene i'm like oh yeah. Even if that's not real, it's still hard to watch. Even in, like in the scripted series too, like they, they showed it like from different perspectives and everything, but yeah. when Kelly Collette is falling down those. St- I mean, it is violent. And it was a very, from my understanding, a very steep staircase. Yeah. And you know, and it was tight and the wall, the way the wall was like, mm-hmm. obviously it's very plausible that she did fall, but now it's like, it was it an owl they did find what's interesting if i remember correctly they did find an owl feather at least one mm-hmm. at the scene and then we you know of course they're experts for the defense when they looked at these weird cuts in her head that weren't deep they were just merely like lacerations that went all the way through the tissue mm-hmm. along the skull they were able to find actually i never knew people got attacked by owls but they found yeah, other cases where people had been attacked by owls and there were photos of their injuries and they were able to compare them. Mm-hmm. They did look like they could be those. Yeah. But then, that you know, here's the, the problem is for every expert, you have another expert to say no because of this. And one yeah. of those experts for the defense was Dr. Henry Lee, who was probably the most famous of all 
defense I think experts. I've, and I, I couldn't tell you his name, but I, you watch enough true crime stuff and you're like, I've seen that guy in the, the other documentary, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And he just got outed, you know, he's done. They're going to like, he, he was lying. He got caught. Oh, lying is that in what happened? Okay. Wow. So now, now they're dealt dealing with how many people are in prison right now based solely on his testimony. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, what specifically was he lying about the blood spatter? spatter. I think that was his, his forte. He was a, generally speaking, he was also like a, an expert in crime scene reconstruction, but he he really, really focused on blood Mm -hmm. spatter. So what would be his motivation to lie? So you getting some back end cash or. I mean, look, if you get just a couple clients off, and big high profile cases, you now mm-hmm. become the guy and you can set your own price. Yeah. And when you're looking at rich people that murder or looking at a, you know, life in prison for murder, mm-hmm. they, they will, they will spare no expense to get the best. And yeah. in order to be the best, you need a track record. Like, mm-hmm. I think that's what happened. I mean, that's just my personal opinion. How do they catch him? How, how do they catch the lie? I don't remember how he got caught. Um, I think maybe if I remember right, I read something about they, they tracked down in one particular case where he had either not actually examined what he said he had examined. Mm -hmm. So it was like a fictionalized opinion within these reports. Yeah. And then that caused alarm and they began digging into, to more and more. And they found many more discrepancies enough to say. He he lied and now he's in big trouble. Yeah. It's it's like uh when you find out a, a cop was a, a dirty cop and you're like, Well, he lied about this case. What else did he lie about? You know? Exactly. It's the, it, it it's not the same, but there was a, a priest that would do baptisms and uh, they found out that he was saying whatever the words are, he was saying it wrong, and then that negated the baptism of however many people. And then you think about how many priests he baptized. Mm. And then really now those priests aren't priests. So I then it sets it. It's a chain of thing. And, it, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I'm like, the intent was there. So it doesn't matter. But I guess you got to hit all the words. And if you don't, then it turns into that wasn't a real baptism. And then how many thousands of that ripple effect, you know, dude, I need to get, I need to check into that and see if either of the two priests that married me and either of my two <laughs> marriages was really not a priest. And then maybe I can get my 401k back, you know, from, <laughs> Hey from man, my- I, that's what we're here for was <laughs> to crack the case. Right. <laughs> uh, as we wrap up here, uh, is there something, a case you wish you could have back? Yeah. For sure. There's one that uh, got solved recently. I I referred to it earlier through genetic genealogy DNA. It was a a serial rape case. Happened in Shelby County, Indiana, between, I want to say, 82 and 85. There were at least nine women who were sexually assaulted. It was clearly the same offender. Mm -hmm. Said the same things. You know, the same things happened. Same description. He was one of those ski mask offenders. Yeah. And uh he would he would administer enemas during the attacks, which was very unusual. Uh, well, I mean, that's a calling card, you know. Yeah, I'm like, it can't be too many of those guys floating around. So no. I prepared a basically a bulletin where I I put all the things that these cases had in common, all nine, 
And of course, the biggest being a lot of them were administered enemas. And I sent it off to police departments all over the country. Do you have any unsolved sexual assault cases or ones that were resolved where these things matched those cases? Mm -hmm. And in like 20 minutes, I get a phone call from this cop at uh, Illinois, the University of Illinois, uh, their campus police. And he's like, I know who did your cases. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, it's the uh, Illinois Enema Bandit. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? He's mm-hmm. like, Frank Zappa wrote a song about him. It was a big deal around here. And I'm like, really? So for, I look up, Frank Zappa wrote a song called The Legend of the Illinois Enema Bandit. And it's about this dude. I'll, I'll say his name because he was convicted for the other yeah. cases. Uh, Michael Kenyon. And uh, he's like, you know, it's just, I'll send you all, I'll, we'll round up all the cases, send them to you. So they did. And I'm like, man, a lot of the thing, same things were said. A lot of, the, you know, things match up. So I get the profiling unit for the FBI involved. They assign a profiler. He agrees. There's no two humans like this in the planet. You have the right guy. He was in between prison stays when ours happened. Like, and when ours stopped, he went back to prison. So mm-hmm. it's like, boom, this is our guy. Go there, get his DNA. I go all the way to Glendale, Arizona, where he's living, get his DNA, interviewing for five, six hours. He doesn't come off of it because he didn't do it. But um, I get back. His DNA doesn't match. Mm-hmm. We had DNA from the very last case and the last case only. In my mind, I'm like, okay, well, maybe that last case was a different offender. And this guy kept saying it was a copycat the whole time. I was famous. He had the speech impediments. I was famous. Yeah, it was, it's a copycat. It's a copycat. And I'm like, mm-hmm. shut the fuck up. It's not a copycat. It was you. Yeah. Well, come to find out the guy they did catch who lived in a neighboring county when they hit him with a search warrant. This is last year. He had some materials at his house that referenced Michael Kenyon, the Illinois anima bandit. So yeah. it's like, did he copycat him on some level? You know, this guy was a big deal, I guess, in the anima fetish community. Mm-hmm. You know, the, at least the deviance within the what the a anima sub, fetish sub genre of right. <laughs> yeah, Can you imagine it's just you, like twenty five Michael Kenyon fans, <laughs> like you just, yeah, you're at your own get-togethers <laughs> in Vegas, but you just really just a couple of shitty hotel rooms. Yeah, do you yeah. want to put it in, or do you want me to put it in? <laughs> So that's one I wish I could get back because I I had to leave. I, I had gotten promoted to the undercover unit. I didn't get mm-hmm. to follow the case after that. And it kind of just set stagnant with no new suspects. And so I wasn't part of this new discovery and mm-hmm. picking back up where they left off and hitting the guy's house and proving who really did it. And I wish I had gotten to. So that's that's mm-hmm. one I'd really like to have back. Is there an unsolved case within the the whole grand scheme of true crime and that we all kind of know that you wish you could have a crack at? Man, a thousand of them. Yeah. Every case we look into uh, for the investigators, I'm like, I I wish I could be a policeman again and jump Mm -hmm. inside this thing. Because it's either the police don't care enough or they just earnestly can't get enough evidence. They know who did it, but can't Mm -hmm. get enough evidence to to prosecute. And it's just because I always think of myself, like I shouldn't be able to say this because I had one left unsolved, but I just always thought so outside the box. Like I wouldn't, if I couldn't get you this way, mm-hmm. I would stay on you until I caught you doing something else. Mm-hmm. And then I would get you that way and then end up cracking you open for the case. I really wanted you for, I just, and so I, 
whether it's true or not in my head, I'm always thinking if they would just let me in there, just put me back in coach, bring me out of retirement. (laughs) I'll get that motherfucker. Yeah. So I I would say a lot of them. I can't pinpoint to just one because I see so many now. Mm -hmm. Well, and you brought up, you know, you were on the undercover unit. We didn't even get to touch on that. So all the more reason to listen to Todd's podcast, the investigators, which is out every Wednesday. Uh, and probably wherever you get to, you get your podcast, but Todd, thank you for being on the show, man. Yeah, brother. Thanks for having me on. It's good to see you.